Well, welcome. If you are here again uh, for the first time, uh, I just want to welcome you and let you know that we are honored to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being a part of our Sunday morning. We know it takes a lot of courage to show up on Sunday um, and, and be here, and, and we are really glad that you gave us uh, this window into your time. So it's a real pre- privilege. So for those of you that have been coming for the past few weeks, we, we've been in seven weeks in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've made it through 14 verses in seven weeks. So we got a journey ahead of us. But we're going to go ahead and take a break because we're getting going way too fast. And so we're going to take a break from Ephesians. We're going to slow down for a few weeks. Then we're going to slow down for some more weeks for Advent. And then Christmas will be here. And then in January, we'll crank her all back up again. So hope you enjoyed that. We're not going to revisit it here for a few weeks. We'll take a little break. But, but we're going to do something really intentional this morning. We do it every single year. About this time, every year, we take a pause in whatever series we're in or whatever we're going through, whatever we're exploring. We begin to ask ourselves some questions about who we're going to be as a church that God is calling us to and what that looks like in our vision for the future. And more so, just think how we think about our life together as a community and our resources and stewardship and how we take care of those resources and how we want to be a church that honors what God is calling us to do made up of families that honor what God is calling us to do. We call that season in our life stewardship. And the idea really is, how do we as a church want to be faithful to what God is calling us to do with what he's blessed us with? And in return, how do we as families want to steward the resources that God is giving us? And so for those of you that are here the first time, I know what you're listening, you're hearing and you're going, He's going to ask for money, isn't he? Like, we finally get up enough courage and we come on the one Sunday to talk about money. It's a conspiracy. And you know what? It is a conspiracy. No, we, uh, we actually aren't even really going to talk about money at all today. But the idea is, is simple, and that is... We want to be a culture that is driven by our biblical generosity. Like, that's the church that I want to be a part of. It's a church that I want to cultivate and lead. It's a church that is moved by its biblical generosity. Not just in terms about how we give our resources, but how we give our time and how we give our life. If you've been around here long enough, you'd know our church exists because the generosity of its people with its time and its resources and its love, the way that it cares about and nurtures each other, the way it volunteers in our children's room, the way we give kind of unbelievably... With our resources and our time to take care of the needs of people. We want to cultivate a, a, a culture here of biblical generosity that is just beyond imagination. Like that's what we long for. In order to do that, we have to come into the reality that we have to deal with some of our own struggles when it comes to our own resources. And those resources are financial. Those resources are time related. And those resources are love related. They are heart related. And we have to understand a few things before we can truly engage in this principle of biblical generosity. And that's this, that my life, right, and everything in it belong to the Lord. It's one of the single greatest principles in our Christian story. If we can grasp that truth, that my life, Trevor Prater's life, and everything that I have, my family, my wife, my children, the stuff, the things, the whatever it is, the money, all that stuff belongs to the Lord. It's not mine, actually. That when I gave my life to Jesus, I surrendered my life wholeheartedly to him, and therefore everything I have belongs to him. And my call as a follower of Christ is the privilege to steward those resources that belong to the Lord. In other words, to to safeguard them, protect them, and give them away. Like that's the heartbeat of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And really, that's the call of the church, to live in such a way that says none of this belongs to us, 
right? Look, if Christ is the head of the body, it all belongs to him. Every chair, every breath, every child's heart that we have, they all belong to Jesus. And as a church, as a community, we are called to shepherd and steward those resources and give them away to the world. Like, that is our deep call. We're not called to, to build up this giant kingdom for ourselves and put a big moat around it and make sure that people that come in here have the fingerprint and you got all those kind of things. And we built this kind of Disneyland to ourselves, if you will. The reality is that the call of the church is to take the resources that are ultimately God's and give them away according to how God calls us to give them away. And so the church should be in the constant state of giving away. Like giving away everything that we have, giving till we are on empty, giving until our hearts are, are depleted and allowing the Lord to refill them and refuel them. And the same thing with our personal lives. We are called to live until we are depleted, to give everything that we have for the Lord and allow him to be the one that refills us. And the truth is most of us are petrified of that because we don't actually want to let the Lord have access to the full spectrum of our lives. We want to keep God where he belongs, which is in this little window over here of what I'm comfortable letting go of, not just financially, but with my time and my resources. But when you begin to understand this principle that everything that I have in my life belongs to the Lord, then I do not get the right to pick and choose. It just simply is all his, and I get the privilege, the privilege of being able to give it all away. And I'm not simply talking about the things. I'm talking about the way we guard our hearts with people. We are called to live in a state of vulnerable, vulnerable love, to say, man, I want to engage the world and the people around me in such a way that it costs me my heart. This is the kind of biblical generosity that we want to be known for as a church. We want people to walk in these doors and feel like they're cared and adored and loved because they are marked by God. They are created as image and they are his. And we want to overflow with this intentional love. It's actually in our, our whole entire mission is that we want to love much and love well. That's part of our mission. If you've gone through our new member class, we talk through these things. We want to be a church that is marked by our loving much, the abundance, and our loving well, the intentionality. And so when we begin to talk about things like stewardship, it's not about, hey, what are you going to be able to contribute to the community? Instead, it's saying, God, here is my life. It is 100% wholly yours. Because the truth is, this church does not want one dollar of yours. We don't. We don't want a single dollar that you have. What we want is for you to give your life fully to Jesus. And as you work out your life with Jesus, wherever he calls you to send your resources and your money is great with us. We just want you to be faithful to him. That's our driving heart. God is, has, will bless us and take care of us. We are not sweating that at all. But we want you to wrestle with the idea of, have I surrendered my heart wholly to Christ? And so every year at this point, we do is we take a moment and we just pause. We just stop whatever we're doing and we're saying, God, in terms of our church and in terms of our family, right, like am I giving you everything that I've got? Are you truly, do I live in such a way that you are truly the Lord of my children, the Lord of my wife, the Lord of my family, my bank account, my home, my own heart, my own emotions, my own resources? Like have I given you everything that I've got? Because I want to be a man or a woman that gives away what God has given me. And so we call this principle, this idea, stewardship. And we look at our lives and we look at our church and we say, are we really doing all that we can to give everything that we've got 100% holy to the Lord since it belongs to him anyway? And we begin to think about that as leaders, as elders, as, as pastors. We begin to unpack those things and say, how do we want to give away all the resources that God has blessed us with in 2023? How do we want to change the dynamic of, of thinking about how the church interacts and loves the world? How do we want to become more free in letting go and releasing and being open to what God is doing and letting Jesus, the head of the church, be the head of the church? 
And so that's the process that we begin as leadership, and that process involves the community because every single one of us makes this happen. If you've been around here long enough, you'll know nothing in this community happens without the people of the community making it happen. Our staff is real small and real incompetent, right? It's just Brandon and I. Well, Jenny brings the bar way up here, and so did Logan and Sherry Owens, but, but Brandon and I, we keep it real, real low limbo bar, right? That's it. We don't have a, a, a receptionist, a custodial staff, a pastoral care team. We don't have a web design, but we have a bunch of just people and volunteers that show up on Sunday morning and make coffee. And you've got the metulists that show up on Saturday and scrub the toilets. And you've got people that come in here and set up chairs and put out every flyer that you've got, all people that have given their hearts and lives away. We have people that every Sunday that stop and pick up the donuts. Those don't magically appear. The donut fairy does not show up and drop them off. They come because people have given their whole hearts and lives to this community. And so we want to stop and examine, like, man, what does it take for us to truly be a community that gives itself away to each other? And so we're going to do that this week, or this week and next week, by looking at this little isolated letter in the back of the Pauline epistles, which are really Paul's letters, right? They're all those epistles just means it's sort of the letter that he wrote, his kind of handcrafted heart, you know, it's all those, the ones we're in like Ephesians is an epistle, like this is the last of those, it's the, the smallest of the ones that are there, but it's really the most kind of explosive. And we're going to cover the entire letter of Philemon in two weeks. I know, it's unbelievable, we are going to actually do it. Um, because we've got a different agenda as we approach this letter. But I want you to look at it with this kind of framework in mind. And that is, as I think about my own life and my own home, am I at a place where I'm truly finding great joy? Like really great joy. Because here's what we're called to as believers. We're actually called to love with great joy and we are called to give with great joy. We are actually called to engage lives that are full of joy. And if your life is marked by anything else, somewhere in the line of things, the system is broken. And part of what we're going to address this morning is how do we realign the system so that our life is marked by great joy. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn right there into the middle of the New Testament, uh, all the way through those little Pauline epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, all those kind of, and get to the Philemon, which is in the very back, and we're going to look at the first part of that letter this morning, and we're going to unpack some of these truths together and talk about how it's going to affect us as a community. So as you do that, as you flip that way, let's take a moment, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and just unpack some of these truths. Um, the truth is, Lord, everything that we have is yours. It just is. It's a blessing. It's been given to you. To us by you, Lord, from our breath to the ability to wake up in the morning, to the sunshine, to our children, to our spouses, to the opportunity to work, to the country that we live in, to the opportunities in front of us, everything is given by you. You are the giver of all good things. Lord, you are the provider, the sustainer. Therefore, everything that we have belongs wholly to you, yet we hold on to it so tightly like it's ours, but the truth is, Lord, it's all yours. The greatest freedom we have in Christ is to be able to release what is yours to the world, to give my heart fully to another person, to love unconditionally, to forgive as you forgave us, to be kind to someone who's struggling or hurting, to give resources to someone who is in desperate need, to give wisdom to our children, to give kindness and compassion to a broken heart, to weep with someone who weeps, to celebrate with someone who celebrates, to open our home 
to someone in need, to share food with someone who has none. These are the great privileges of the Christian life. They're the great privileges of what it means to follow Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, I want us to examine our lives in a way that says, do we live with great joy? Or are we so afraid that what we have might slip our grasp, that we lost our heart for giving our life away? Take a moment in your own heart this morning, just as you sit here, and just ask the Lord to, <clears throat> to teach your heart something fresh or something new, something alive. Just, God, press into my heart and teach me this morning. Just whisper those things to the Lord. We do this each week. Take, the mo- take a moment and just pray for someone around you. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people, even as we'll see this morning, the, the movement and the spiritual life of the people around you should matter to you. Pray for them. Pray that God would move in them. Care about the spiritual growth of the people around you. Ask the Lord to move in them, even if you don't know them. Maybe, they, maybe they're your children, or maybe it's someone that you just met for the first time. Just pray that God would move in them. Pray for someone else this morning. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. You are King Eternal. Lord, you are the shepherd of our lives and our resources. Everything we have belongs to you. Lord, let us give and love with great joy. This is the greatest privilege we have to give away what you have given us. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you a little backstory about uh, old Philemon. And I'm going to call him Philemon and Philemon and feel like I'm not going to work here anymore. Like it is hard to pronounce. And I'm going to go back and forth. Same guy. All right. So we're going to start off with Philemon and then it's going to morph into something else. I don't need the emails. I know I said it wrong. Like it's just the way that is. So it's a hard one to get your kind of mind around. But we're going to, we're going to go with the idea that it is Philemon. All right. And so a lot of people debate on how you say it, but that's his name. Now, we know that Philemon, here's what we know about from the book and from the little bit of backstory from some other resources. We know that Philemon was a pretty wealthy Roman, and he lived in the city of Colossae, which was a kind of a, a, a adjacent, if you will, to Ephesus, where Paul spent a lot of time. It was a kind of a good walk, like it was quite a few miles, like I think over 60, but most people believe that Paul evangelized Colossae in that two and a half years that he was spending time in, in Ephesus. So for those of you that have been with us for the past seven weeks, we've really dug deep into the book of Ephesians. And one of the things we talked about was that Ephesians is, is the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian church, is really one of the most educated and discipled churches that Paul had ever been a part of, right? Because he had spent so much time with there. Two and a half plus years he spent daily teaching and instructing the church in Ephesus. And so while he was there, he made lots of little journeys to the countryside, and he most likely evangelized Colossae, which goes on to be the letter that he wrote to the church in, uh, the church, the Colossian church, right? That's the letter to Colossians. And so they met this guy there who becomes a really close friend. His name is Philemon, and he's pretty wealthy, and he's Roman. And somewhere in the whole mix of this, he becomes a believer. And one of Paul's companions, Epaphras, starts a community in Colossae, and it becomes a home church that begins to meet in Philemon's home. 
So he has a house there, and we know it's a pretty sizable house because he has slaves and he has bond servants. Well, most of his slaves are most likely bond servants because it's a very Roman thing to do with a uh, kind of a wealthy person. And he had a house that at least had multiple guest rooms. We're going to see that later on where Paul asks him to actually prepare a guest room for him. So he's got this larger home with rooms, and he has some, some servants, and he's got this house, and the church is meeting in his home, which means it's large enough to accommodate a gathering of people. Now, churches in those days, they didn't meet as house churches and cell groups. They often didn't meet out in the open, and usually kind of was anywhere from about 8 to 48 or 58 people, depending on how big it was. So the house had to be sizable enough. They're not like houses that we build today. If you ever go to the Middle East, you'll realize they had... Very small little mud dugout cave dwellings and things. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. So for him, it was a sizable operation that he was running there in Colossae. And he's a good friend of Paul's. And so Paul writes him this very personal letter. It's a one-pager. And he's going to ask him for something very specific. Because what, t- what happens somewhere along the way is that one of the bond servants or servants or slaves that Philemon has, his name is Onesimus, and he wronged him somehow. Somehow Onesimus wronged Philemon. We don't know how it was. It doesn't go any specifics. Some people will say that he stole from him or that he did something else. No one really knows. But there was a disconnect and a break in that relationship, and Onesimus runs away. And there was a lot of hurt there and a lot of kind of things that happened that would be, you would need to actually address Roman law. But Onesimus runs away and he makes his way to Paul, who is now in one of his many imprisonments. And we actually don't know which one this is. But Paul was imprisoned many times and he writes this letter with Onesimus, who has come to be by his side. And Onesimus probably came to Paul running from Philemon. He'd heard a lot about Paul, goes to Paul, most likely looking for help. Well, in that conversation somewhere, Onesimus gets saved, and he becomes this incredibly important partner and support for Paul, in so much that Paul is going to actually call Onesimus his heart, his valued partner and heart, all right? So they have this deep relationship, and so he writes this letter to Philemon to basically say, I'm going to ask you for something really hard. I'm going to ask you to receive Onesimus, you're right, this this wronged relationship that you have, this runaway servant that you have, I'm going to ask you to not only receive him back, but I'm going to ask you to receive him not as a slave, but as a brother. And it's a really powerful and explosive call because it would shatter all the relationships that the Roman world would understand about slavery and bond servitude. And so that's why this little letter is really powerful because it's this giant ask that Paul is asking of his dear friend and leader of the church to basically break all the cultural norms and think about what it means to love as the community of Christ. And so we're going to look at it in terms of how we're called to love and give with great joy. So keep that backstory in mind, and we're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. I know that was a lot. If you're familiar with the letter, it's, it's relatively simple, but if you're hearing it for the first time, it's going to take a little bit to wrap your mind around it. But this is the first 16 verses, or we'll look at the first 16 today. We'll do them really quickly. But I want to read it so you hear it out loud, all right? So this is Paul's letter to his dear friend Philemon, with that as our background. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, to the church that meets in your home. So a lot of people and scholars believe that Aphia is his wife and Archippus is their son. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it makes a ton of sense that that's how that would lay out because he's addressing the church that meets in their home. So he says, to Philemon, or Philemon, my dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So to Philemon and his family, this letter is to you. And he says, grace and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have full understanding of every good Thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although I, in Christ I could be bold and order you to do as you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I, as Paul, an old man now a prisoner for Christ, appeal to you as my son, appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that I could, he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do and give me will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you a little while back was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So this is kind of where Paul starts out, right? He says, listen, this is me, Paul, writing this letter by hand to you and your family, to Philemon, right, to your wife and to your son, I want you to know that I love you and I care about you. And I'm going to write this letter to you and I'm going to ask you a very difficult and very challenging task. And essentially what he's getting to in this letter are the things that will bring him and bring Philemon great joy. And part of this kind of discovery is going to be the giving away of life and things that begin to release joy in our own life. And so we see a couple things up front that bring Paul great joy, and they shouldn't be a surprise. We talked a little bit about them last week in our, our study of Ephesians, right? But the first thing that Paul walks out there is that I find great joy in your faith, and I find great joy in the way that you love the saints. So I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord and your love for the saints, which is exactly what we talked about last week. Paul loved and it brought him great joy when he heard about the spiritual growth and movement in the lives of other people. So he says, I pray for you in my prayers all the time because I've heard about your faith. Paul genuinely loved and cared about when people were growing in the Lord. He was never threatened by their spiritual growth. He was never threatened by other communities or other movements. He just loved to hear that the saints were growing in Christ. And he said, I pray for you, and it encourages my soul because I've heard about your faith, that you are leading that church in Colossae, that they're meeting in your home, and that your faith is alive and that it is active, and it brings great joy to my heart. 
which is exactly what he told the church in Ephesus last week when we looked at that passage. He finds great joy in the lives of other people's spiritual growth, which is, of course, what we're called to as believers, to celebrate with those, to be excited when other people come to know Christ. When they hear, when you hear about their growth and their faith, to be moved by them, like Paul found great joy in their spiritual growth. He also found great joy in the fact that they truly loved the saints, right? So I said, I, I pray for you, and I find great joy in the fact that your faith is strong and that you have great love for all the saints. And again, we talked about saints last week. This is the idea of not some kind of uh, super pious, super religious person that intercedes for us, that we pray to, that gives a special blessing here on earth. That's heresy. The reality is saints are simply, they are the believers that have been set apart by God. The idea of saints comes from this idea of being set apart, that we have been called out of the world, set apart for a holy purpose to be used by God, and therefore every believer is a saint because we've been marked and set apart to be used by the king. That means that this entire community as believers is made up and marked of the saints. So when Paul says, I find great joy about your faith and the fact that you have genuine love for the people. Like it really brought him joy to know that the saints loved the saints. That the, the people of God loved the people of God. Because Paul, like Christ, knew this wasn't easy. I mean, think about the mix of believers that would just be in that small house church in Colossae, right? You've got a household that has servants, that's got Romans, that has other Gentile Greeks, that has Jewish Christians that are living there in Colossae, and they've all kind of merged together in one crazy, dysfunctional movement of people with all their crazy backgrounds and stories and heritages, because the heritage of a Jewish person was incredibly different than that of a Roman, or that of a Greek, and you put all those people into one blender, and life gets really complicated. Certain foods now have to be kind of adjusted and thought about differently, because all my life I've been told I can't eat this, but now I'm free to do that in Christ. I don't even know how to do that or how to walk that out. Plus, my family as Jewish people have disowned me. And then you have the Romans that grew up with literally hundreds of gods, trying to understand now that there is only one, and trying to navigate a relationship with a world that says you can worship anything. And you put all these people in this crazy mix and life gets really hard. Plus, you're meeting in one small house and you're together all the time because the church was very different in those days. It didn't gather once a week on a Sunday morning for 55 minutes so that we could check our habitual box and move on to whatever is next. They met together for life because they had to have it. They were first-generational Christians. They didn't run to Mardell's to find whatever discipleship material were out there. They didn't get online and download some podcast of which are a thousand. They didn't go to a Christian self-help section to find how to deal with an irritating grandma. Like whatever, right? They just organized out of necessity and sometimes out of survival because it was a very hostile thing to be a believer in a very hostile world. And Jesus knew this. Do you remember on that, that night that he would be betrayed, the night that we celebrate communion, that we kind of go back to the Lord's Supper and all those kind of things, where he's sitting with the disciples, and after dinner he washes all their feet, removes his garments, ties a towel around his waist, scrubs all their feet. You remember that? And he tells them in that moment, he says, a new command I give you. John 13, 33, right? New command I give you. You must love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples, by how you love one another. So what Jesus tells the disciples is this. I'm basically leaving. The entire world will know you follow me by how you love each other. So that means the greatest evangelistic tool the church has is how it loves 
the saints within its own body. Why? Because it will be so radically different from the way that the world loves that the world has to take notice. And Jesus knew that. And he knew it was going to be hard. And Paul knew that. He knew that was going to be hard. And so he finds great joy when the saints love the saints because it's the call of Christ. When the church loves differently in that way, loves as Christ loved us, in that unconditional, radical way that is fully from the heart, the world takes notice. It means the greatest tool that we have as the church is not ads on the radio or T-shirts or whatever. It is how we love and it's got to be like Christ. And so Paul found genuine joy when the church loved like Jesus. And he says, it brings me great joy to see your faith and to see you love the people so well. Man, we could probably stop there, but it gets better. This is what Paul says. He says, because of these things, I pray for you. Right? I pray for you. Remember last week, what did Paul pray? He prayed that they would know Jesus better, right? They would know him more. Listen to this. He says, because of that, I always remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. And here's what I pray. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. So Paul says, I am so overjoyed with your faith and the way you love the saints. I am praying for you constantly. And you want to know what I'm praying? I'm praying that you would be active in sharing your faith. So Paul's big prayer is not for their safety, not for their protection. That's what we talked about last week, right? Paul wasn't so concerned with their, what they were, they were getting out of trouble or not dealing with difficult things. He wanted them to know Jesus more. But today he says, Philemon, listen to what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would be active in sharing your faith. Why? Because the church was small and it needed to grow? Because they knew if they had enough people that came into the church, they'd be actively able to take over the, the Roman Senate and have a political presence? That they would win more people to Christ? That they would have a much bigger Christian community and city? Is that why he asked that they would be active in sharing their faith? No, nope, not at all. He says, I want you to be active in sharing your faith so that you may understand every good thing you have in Christ. So Paul's desire and prayer for them to share their faith was not so they could get enough people to hire a full-time pastor and build a family life center, right? His desire for them was not so they could grow and actually see more converts. He knew that that was not up to them. See, we have no oversight of the outcome of evangelism. That's Jesus' role purely. Our role is to be faithful in talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God's role is to do all the resulting. And the resulting is really not up to us, because evangelism is not for you. It's not for the church. Evangelism is simply so that we might know the fullness of God. He invites us to participate with him. Do you think he needs you or me? Like, do you think God is waiting on me and all of my ridiculous, terrible things in my life and bad articulation of words like Philemon to actually share the gospel? He could snap his fingers, sneeze, breathe, and everyone, if he wanted, would come to know Christ. He doesn't need us, but he invites us. Why? Because when we walk with Christ, when we're reminded of the things that we have in him, grace and truth and freedom and full life, it makes our hearts come alive and we begin to understand what we have in Christ. 
Sometimes we forget what we have until we begin to talk about it. We begin to look at how our lives were, what life was like. Until we begin to articulate those truths, we tend to forget. We have really short memories as followers of Christ. Sharing our faith is really about articulating how God has taken us from point A to point B, and it's a beautiful reminder of that story, and it invigorates the soul. And when we do that, we get to participate in the fullness of Christ. Now, whether or not that person accepts Jesus, that's up to the Lord, but your faithfulness in being a great steward of your story. Because see, your story in coming to know Christ is actually one of those things that you get to steward, along with your finances, along with your children, along with your resources and your time. Your story is part of that. You can lock it away or you can open it up to the world. And what Paul says brings him great joy is the faith and the love that Philemon and his family have for the saints. And so Paul prays that they would actually share their faith so that they would know Jesus better. The byproduct, God would do what he does, whatever that is. But in the meantime, what would happen is that they would know Christ more. See, most of us are afraid of sharing our faith with people around us because we are, um, well, we're, we're kind of in this place where we are intimidated by what we may not know or what they may think of us, right? So I don't know that I know the Bible well enough or I don't want them to think I'm, you know, judgmental or that I'm a whatever. Like most of us, we use those excuses, right? Because somehow we think that this thing relates back to us. But the reality is, is that if the sole goal of evangelism is that we might fully know Christ, then why is this not something that was driving our hearts? Like if he's given us the key to know him better, why would we not want the people around us to hear the story that God has used to change us, right? So this is what Paul says. It brings him great joy to see the faith and the love that Philemon and his family have for the saints. In fact, it brings him such great joy that he prays for them and he prays that they may share their faith so that they would know Christ more. Very similar to what we saw last week in Ephesus, but really, really, really powerful. Because Paul is not trying to grow the church. It's not a seven-step plan to how to get the house church to move into a full-fledged church and make sure you have the right motto and the right mission statement and the right things lining up and your 501c through paperwork is all. It's just be faithful, love the people, right? And share Christ. And when you do, you will know the full riches of what you have in him. And sometimes we forget what we have in Christ until we, rem we are reminded of it. So it brings him great joy. And that great joy brings about great love. So he goes on to say this. <clears throat> he's, going to show, he's going to tell Philemon something else that brings him great joy about him. He says, listen, your love, this is to Philemon, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So think about that. He pauses for a moment after saying, hey, I'm praying for you that you'd be able to share the gospel more so that you would know the fullness of what you have in Christ. And he says, brother, it brings me great joy, right, to know that you have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now, in order to really grasp this, you have to understand that that word in Greek, that word refresh there actually is the same word that's used for a soldier that is taking a break from battle, okay? The idea of that kind of refreshment and restoration, and if you think about the household that Philemon was running, here he is, a, a relatively wealthy guy. He's got a relatively large home. His wife and his son are fully invested in their ministry and church life together. 
Their home is the place that the community meets. And so if you put some of these things together, you begin to see the environment, right? And the environment is this. They have an incredibly welcoming household. In fact, they have guest rooms in their house just for people to come and stay in. In verse 22, Paul's going to say, I want you to take one of those rooms and I want you to prepare it for me because I'm coming back. So they have this home that is kind of biblically open and from a hospitable way. You know that Afia probably has spent many a time cooking meals for whoever traveled through or for the community. And people would come in to be refreshed and restored, and they'd sit in that house, and they'd eat, and they'd share stories, and they'd find their weary hearts refreshed. Paul says, you refresh the hearts of the saints. You only refresh something, right, by spending time with it and investing in it and giving it new life again. So if you're a refresher of hearts, like Philemon was, it's not something that happens because you gave a guy who was thirsty some water. You refresh a heart by giving a broken and parched heart a place to rest and refuel and re-engage. Now, we've all had a time in our life, right, where we've been so beat down, so weary, so tired, so hurt, so struggling, whatever, that we seek that person out who we know will just be the renewal point, will just be that place where they can instill in us truth again, Remind us of, of maybe who we are, what God is doing, that place that we go to where it's like they're just charging our hearts or refueling our empty tanks or just filling us with something. We're ready to walk out the doors again and go do life. And that was what Philemon's household was. It was a place where the weary soldier, right, the weary believer could go in and be restored and refreshed and renewed through the community of God. And it brought Paul so much joy because Philemon was a refresher of hearts. And his family was. It's why Paul addresses the letter to all of them. What you have created in this community is a refreshing place for the weary believer, right? There's a whole sermon wrapped in there about what we are, what we are as a church, and who we should be, and are we the, the place where we're refreshing the hearts of people, or are we just takers? But, but that's not really what I want to get to today. What I want us to understand are the things that bring Paul joy, that should bring us joy. Because Paul takes this one step farther now. He actually says and finds great joy in the idea that Philemon can be trusted with hearts. All right, So he's trusted with the hearts of the saints. They come in. He pours into them, but then Paul makes his big ask, right? And here's the big ask. Therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. In other words, he's saying, I, I am Paul. I could um, tell you to do it, uh, and you would do it, right? I know I could do that, um, but I don't want to. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of love. So I'm not going to order you. I'm going to ask you out of love for me. And as a refresher of hearts, right? As Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So I'm in chains, I'm old, like I love you, I need you to do this. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, which is amazing that Paul calls him his son, right? But this is how Paul treated people that came to know Christ. It's what he calls Timothy, it's what he calls Titus, like these people that Paul's invested in. He, he loves them so deeply that they get grafted into his family. 
So here's Onesimus, this slave who has done something, wronged his good friend Philemon in such a way, probably stole from him, but we don't know, and then ran away. Comes to know Christ, and what does Paul call him? My son. He says, so I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. In other words, he got saved while I was right here in jail. Formerly, he was useless to you. In other words, you had severed your relationship with him because of whatever it was that he had done. But now, he's become useful to both you and me. Why? Because he's been redeemed. He's been saved. Something's transformed in his heart. So now he's become really useful. In fact, so much so that he's my son. I am sending him. So I don't know if if Onesimus is in on this or not, but Paul says, I am sending him from wherever I am in prison, possibly Rome, could be somewhere else. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. So what Paul's getting at is this. You are the refresher of hearts and I love that you can be trusted with the hearts of the saints. And so I'm going to ask you to be trusted with part of mine. And Paul makes this really personal plea to Philemon, basically saying, you're trusted as the refresher of hearts for those in your church. And I'm going to ask a really difficult task of you and I'm going to ask you to, to be trusted with a part of my heart. And that heart is actually a person. And I love him dearly because he's a believer, and his name is Onesimus. Which, of course, in this letter would have come as a, can you imagine getting this? This guy, somebody walked it to you from wherever Paul is, and you're like, oh, I made a letter from Paul. Super excited and whatever, and you've got these sort of things, and he's complimenting, and he just says, I'd like you to actually consider something huge to take part of my heart, a heart of yours that has been broken and shattered and ruined, and I want you to love it and refresh it. And so Paul asks him, as the refresher of hearts, to do something incredibly hard, and that is to trust him with a piece of Paul's own heart. And it's a remarkable ask, right? Because here's this guy who has done something wrong to you and left your household, and you have all the law on your side to do whatever it is that you need to do. As a Roman citizen, right, Philemon had the right to do whatever he wanted, most likely, probably up to and including death, for a bondservant that broke those contracts and left. And what Paul's asking you to do is think differently than the world. This Onesimus, his life's changed and he's become an important part of mine. And I trust you as the Keeper and refresher of hearts to protect mine, is what Paul says. So he goes on to say this. He says, I would like to have kept him with me so he could take your place in helping you while I was in chains. Because basically, as a, as a great friend and leader of a church, right, Philemon was a huge encouragement and help to Paul. So he said, I would like to have, have kept him with me since you can't be here. He's taking your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent or any favor, so that any favor you do would be spontaneous and not forced. So he's saying, listen, I could make you, but I don't want to. I want this to be from your heart as a refresher of hearts, to refresh and restore mine, and to renew the relationship with Onesimus, not because I made you, but because you get it and because you want to. We start talking about giving in life of the church, right? How many of us have given, or not just our resources, but our time and our heart, because we felt guilty? We felt like that's what we were supposed to do, or we had to do. Like, they would look at me differently if I didn't, or, you know, I'd get a phone call from Trevor, he'd show up at my door and be like, really, $10? Come on, you can do better than that. 
Like, I mean, that's the life we live, right? We have this jaded hurt from the church when it comes to our life and resources, and so we turn our giving and our things into part of our story for why we're so protective of it. I mean, I have that same story in my life. I grew up in a church that was a very large, kind of very wealthy church, and I remember that my dad wrestled back and forth with going to church my whole life. My mom would always take us. My dad would show up on the big ones, right, Christmas, Easter, and other times where she guilted him into it. He was definitely a believer, but it was really something that he just sort of worked out on his own, right? He would tell you that. Always had a bit of an issue, but I remember the day that the pastor, and I won't use his name because he's still around, came to our house. First time and only time I ever saw him at our house. I saw him a lot of the times, obviously. Um, But he came to our house, and my mom, you would have thought the Pope was coming by, right? For some reason, we had to pull out the china. By the way, when I come to your house, nobody pulls out the china. I start pulling out china. I deserve to drink out of nice teacups. No. So she pulls out all the nice things for some reason, which was fascinating to me, that we cleaned up. We had all cleaned our rooms like he was coming in our room. Like it was the coming of King Charles, right? So we get the house fully ready for a Sunday afternoon when the Pope was going to swing by and visit with us. And, you know, just make a little house visits or whatever. And he comes in and he begins to talk to my parents and we're kind of, my brother and I are kind of running around and they kind of hear what's going on. And, and he makes this ask to my dad who was a, had a construction company, a, kind of a residential company, but had some, some connections. He asks my dad to basically for free put in the floor of the basketball court. I mean, whatever, right? Just, we don't have that problem here. But nonetheless, it was a problem. So I, you know, it didn't make much sense, but I overheard my mom and dad, because kids hear everything. I overheard my mom and dad talking later that night, actually kind of more than talking later that night. My dad was really, really hurt. And it actually fueled a lot of his dislike for the church for a long time, because the first time that our pastor ever showed up at our house or did anything was to ask my dad for something financial right, that my dad really couldn't give. It was a monster ask. I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of time and labor to put in a, a literally a hardwood basketball. And here he is saying, man, he doesn't care about us. He just wants this for whatever. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but I remember how much it jaded his heart. We all have those stories, right? We all have that sort of forced person where that Paul decides he's going to say, hey, look, you need to do this. This is what good church people do. And it has to do financially, it has to do with time, and we develop this jaded relationship out of guilt. That's why I tell you, like, we don't want anything you have, period. We just want your heart to be given to Jesus fully. And then whatever Jesus does in your heart is great with us. If he tells you to give all your money to the church next door, fine. We will let that be up to you and the Lord. We don't care. What we care about is your heart. And that's essentially what Paul's getting to. Is he says, I, I could, but I don't want to, because what I want you to do is not be forced I want you to fall in love with the idea that being a refresher of hearts also has to do things that are very difficult. And oftentimes the biblical thing is always the hardest thing because it's the one that crushes the culture. It's the one that finds joy in places that are really hard where you want vengeance, you want justification, you want something to come back, you want that to happen to them, you want God to bring about justice. What ends up happening is God says, love them, right? It's a changer of worlds. So Paul says, it brings me great joy that you're a refresher of hearts. I want to trust you with part of mine. And then comes this giant ask, right? I want you to receive part of my heart back. And this is what he says. And this is where we find the sort of last piece, our our great joy in in the forgiveness and loving his family. This is what he says, verse 15. Perhaps 
The reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, because he's so dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So he said, listen, I'm going to ask you to, to, to have a change of perspective, Philemon. I know what your perspective is right now. It's hurt. I know your, 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 it's frustration. It's justice. But I'm going to ask you something. And I'm going I'm to appeal to you as a refresher of hearts. Not out of my mandate, but because I want you to know Christ more. It's why I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith. And he says, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to open your heart to a change of perspective. And here it is. Perhaps, just perhaps, the reason you were separated from him for a little while was that so you could be together forever. Now, this is the change of perspective that happens when we begin to think eternally, right? Because here's the thing. What Paul's basically saying is that maybe the reason all these things happened was not for the reason you think it is. But maybe God is fully at work doing something else. Maybe the reason y'all were separated like this and this hurt happened was so that you won't have him for a little while, but you'll have him forever. See, as a bondservant, which is most likely what Onesimus was, he owed some kind of debt or his family owed some kind of debt to Philemon. And when that debt was worked off as a bondservant, Onesimus would be free to go and typically would walk out the door. That is often how that happened. You did your seven years, you did your three years, you were faithful, you honored that, and you left. It was a temporary relationship. And Paul says, perhaps that was what was going to happen. That you would have Onesimus in your life, he would serve you, he would do his duty, he would leave, and you would never see him again. That could have very well been the case. But perhaps all this happened, whatever that situation was, whatever unfolded there, so that so that you would have him forever. Why? Because now he is a believer and he's choosing to return to your household as part of your family. See, it's really easy for us to look at situations in our life and be mad about them. Can't believe this happened. I hate that this is unfolding. Work is so hard. Finances are tough. My marriage is this. All these things, we look at and we say, the terrible whys and the whys and the whys, and this is, can't be happening this way. And we become bitter, we become resentful, we become jaded. But part of following Christ is changing our perspective a little bit and saying, what if I didn't look at it through my lens of Onesimus stole from me and he left and now he is dead to me? What if I looked at it through the lens of saying, what if Onesimus had to do that in God's economy so that he would meet Paul and be saved? Would I not be overjoyed that maybe I lost a tiny bit in the middle, but Onesimus got his eternal life? Would I not find joy there? I'm just still mad that I didn't get what was due to me. As a believer, the economy of God changes everything, doesn't it? Because Paul says, what if you had to go through some heartache so that he could meet Jesus? So that maybe it wasn't just a little while that you had him, but it was forever in your family and forever, forever, eternally. Would that be okay with you? Well, now Philemon has this perspective that's going, man, yeah, maybe that would be okay with me. What if you had to walk through temporary struggles in this life for something much greater? And maybe that greater thing is God is developing a character in you, a maturity, a perseverance to be able to handle whatever's next. Or maybe you're walking through difficulty because part of God's inner incredible workings and his providence is he's bringing about other things. Like it's not just all about you and your struggle. 
Maybe you are having struggle because you're dealing with people that need to see your resilience and your kindness and your care and that one day they meet Christ. Would you not walk through struggle so that Onesimus might meet Jesus? Well, there's no way for us to tell as believers. So what Paul says is live in a way that changes the perspective of how you see life. It's not all about you. Perhaps, perhaps God is at work even in the most difficult times in your life. That he will redeem your brokenness and your story for somebody else's redemption and glory. Right? Now, I'm not saying and going down the road of saying God allows you to go through terrible things so that other people, but I am saying that God can redeem your brokenness if you'll change your perspective for something great. And yes, sometimes God does allow us to walk through really hard things because there's something so much bigger at play. And as a believer, we've got to be at a place where we welcome that. We say, okay, yeah, you know what? I would, uh, I'd struggle with a little bit of a public humiliation of having Onesimus kind of shatter our world and run away and what the world says I should do because Onesimus met Paul, he got saved, and he became part of Paul's heart. And so Paul says, so here's the ask, right? I need you to change your perspective, Philemon. And in order to do that, you're going to have to do something really hard. I'm going to ask you to welcome him as family. In order to welcome someone as family in that, that situation, you have, to have two, you have to do two things. First, you've got to forgive, right? And two, you have to love differently. So forgiveness, every single one of us is okay with forgiveness in this room. We, we love forgiveness. In fact, we love to forgive with a couple of caveats. We love to forgive when you recognize what you've done wrong. When you come to me and you say, I have wronged you, I am sorry, I will not do it again. We then bestow our forgiveness upon you and all is right in the world, right? We love to forgive, but you've got to do a few things first. When someone doesn't do that, then forgiveness turns into a grudge and a grudge turns into resentment and resentment turns into death. That's just the way the progression happens. What Paul is saying is in order for you to love someone as family like this, to accept Onesimus back into your household, you're going to have to forgive him because when he returns to Colossae, everyone's going to want to know what happened. Why? How is he back? How is he not in jail? How is he not going to be put to death? And what is Philemon going to say? He's going to have to say, because I forgave him. Which means he's going to have to come to a place in his heart where however this person wronged him, he became not only okay with it, but okay with it enough to say you're part of my family. Part of Aphius and Agrippus, like you are part of us. Welcome to this church. Welcome to this community. And that's a huge ask, right? But here's the deal. Did Jesus really do anything different for you? I mean, he forgave you at your worst. And that was yesterday. Like he literally, you have done nothing to earn his forgiveness. You have done everything to earn a place where he should say, enough is enough with you. Like, you're making me crazy. Like, every time I forgive you, you return to the same pile of garbage. Every time I set you free, you live the same lie. Like, I've had plenty. But he doesn't. Because you did nothing to earn it. He lavishes it upon you. And he asks you to love in the same way. So in Colossians chapter 3, which is kind of ironic, if you will, that uh, he writes this letter to the church in, in Colossae. He says this about forgiveness, which, which Philemon would have been well I would understand this very well because a letter showed up at his house, all right? 
And this is what he says in 3.12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, verse th- or chapter 3, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Part of me thinks that Paul wrote that part of the letter to the Colossians pointed at Philemon, right? So he says, listen, love each other. Forgive each other's grievances. Love as Jesus loved you. Now, we're great with forgiveness until that last line. That last line is a kick in the stomach. Because we can forgive on our own terms, but if we forgive like Jesus forgave us, that changes everything because I did nothing. In fact, I continue to hurt and harm and disobey and trespass against Christ every single day of my life. And yet Jesus, in his full forgiveness, lavishes us with his extravagant, unconditional, ridiculous, forgiving love and then tells us to love people like that. So in order, right, for Philemon to invite Onesimus back into his house, his family, he had to reconcile this forgiveness in his heart and say, I'm going to love like Jesus. And we don't know that Philemon is perfect in this situation, but we do know that he has to be the one that forgives and the one that welcomes back. It's hard to do. You've got somebody in your life that has hurt you and wronged you, and you don't want to forgive them. You want them to pay. Now, you would not say that out loud like you don't want to hit them with your car. You just kind of want God to do something a little bit to remind the world that they aren't who they say they are. Just maybe a little bit of public shaming. That'd be fine. And then we can all be back to normal. That's, we, our, our sinful hearts want that. It's not our place, right? Not our place. So he says, I'm going to ask you to forgive like this and then love like family. And he actually says this multiple times. I want you to treat him not as a slave, but as a brother. I want you to welcome him in better than a slave as a brother in Christ. Now, any of you that have family recognize that this is not an easy ask, right? Family is very hard to love. Um, very hard. I have a brother. I have a mom. Um, I, have, I have family. My brother and I are, are, are great friends, but we fight like crazy. We still do. We still disagree. But there isn't one moment of one day that if he called me and said he needed me, I wouldn't drop anything I have and show up at his side, right? Wouldn't fight for him and do all those kind of things. Now, I realize that not everybody has family like that, and sometimes we fight for our family and they don't fight for us, and it's not always easy. But this isn't really a letter about, or the idea is really about loving kind of biological family. It's about loving like spiritual family. And so what Paul is saying is that I, I want you to welcome him as you would the dearest brother in your own life, like your real biological brother who you would love to fight for and go to battle with and care for and love their children and just celebrate their good things when they get a job or when they get the, you, those, those perfect family situations. I want you to love Onesimus like that. And in order to love like that, you have to forgive because you can't love that way and be holding a grudge. If you're trying to love someone in your life that you're still angry at, it is not working, I promise. If you have yet to forgive them, release that resentment that's in your heart, you are not loving them as Christ loves you. And here's the deal. As hard as that may be, it's still the call of Christ. So Paul says this. These are the things that bring us from great, great, great love to great, great joy, right? that we truly find joy in the spiritual growth of others. Paul loved the faith of Philemon and his wife and their son. And he loved the fact that they loved the saints. Like it brought him so much joy. Like the joy of loving the spiritual growth of other people and loving people 
is the hallmark of the church. And it also brought Paul great joy that Philemon could be trusted with hearts. He was the refresher of hearts, and so Paul believed in him enough to trust him with his own. Is this place, this church, this community, are we, are we, are we a refresher of hearts? Are we trustable with the hearts of the people around us? When someone, like next Sunday when we share prayer requests, if they, if they, they get vulnerable and they share a difficult, really difficult thing in their life, are we trustable with their hearts? It's a real question, but it's the real call of the church. And in the middle of all that, right, as these things lead us down this road, are we working enough on our own hearts to understand a couple of things? That sometimes true joy comes when we change our perspective. That everything isn't about us. That somehow we have to fight through the difficulty to see the great joy in it. To always see the thing that God is probably and could be doing in and amongst our struggle. And to ask God for a change of perspective. That maybe I'm walking through these things because God is doing something greater and bigger in me or in someone else, and therefore I welcome it. I will take every bit of hardship to see somebody else free in Christ. And as I deal with some of the shortcomings in my own life, I recognize that I have to forgive and love like family. Both believers in this building and people outside of this building. What we're going to see next week is what this forgiveness costs us when Christ compels us to give ourselves away. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather in this place and open up this powerful little booger of a letter um, that just tugs at all the wrong places in my own heart. But is such a beautiful call to church. Like it's just such an amazing picture of the church I want to be a part of and the church I want to, to worship with and the church I want to bury my heart in. So Lord, help us to find great joy through great love. Help us to love and celebrate each other's spiritual moments and to love like family, to change our perspective, to think differently about our circumstances and situations, to forgive and to be entrusted with hearts. So close our time in worship this morning, Lord. I pray that you would move in us and stir us so that we might know the fullness of what we have in Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.
in your chair, we have these, uh, thank you, we have these, uh, just kidding, we have these 2023 pledge cards. These are to help us plan and dream about next year. So they're an important part of what we do as a church because it helps us think about how we budget it and things go from there. If you're a member or a regular attender, these are for you. If you're a guest with us, these are not for you. But here's how this unfolds, is that next week we're going to encourage you to bring your pledge card. We're also going to send an email out on Realm that'll be as an attachment in there also. 
Next week, we're going to have an intentional time just to offer our hearts and our worship to the Lord in which you'll be able to turn these in, offer them to the Lord as part of your expression of just saying, God, you get me, all of me, my family, our resources. We want you to talk about it and contemplate it. It's not, gonna, it's not binding. It's not like we hold you to it, but it helps us dream and think about what's possible in the years to come and what God is doing this year. So take that with you. Think about it as a family. Bring it back next week, and we'll have an opportunity to celebrate that as we finish up this book and we talk about the cost that forgiveness has when it comes to giving our life away, right? Kind of a funny sell, uh, stewardship sermon. We only ask for your debit card one time. So uh, pretty good, pretty good day altogether. Go from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to have a change of perspective, to forgive and to love like family, to allow great joy to bring about great love. Go in peace.